Luke chapter number 10 and verse number 38. The Word of God says, Now it came to pass as they went that he entered into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about much serving, and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Notice verse 39 once more and we'll pray. And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you for Mother's Day, what it means. But Lord, more than that, thank you for our mothers and the blessings that they are to our lives. I pray, Heavenly Father, that each heart would be touched in a particular way. And Lord, that you do in us what only you can accomplish. Speak to each heart, Lord, and we'll give you the glory for it. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm struck by the phrase in verse number 39 where the Bible tells us that Mary is found at the feet of Jesus. Now, some of you are saying, well, of course, preacher, I've heard this message preached a hundred times about Mary choosing to be at his feet. But something you'll find if you study through the Word of God is it wasn't just on this instance that Mary is found at the feet of Jesus. In fact, you'll find another instance where she's found at the feet of Jesus in Mark chapter 14. And even yet another instance in John chapter number 11 where she's found at the feet of Jesus. In fact, I would go so far as to say this, that almost every time that you see Mary in the Word of God, uh, this Mary of Bethany, the sister of Martha and of Lazarus, every time that you see her, there is one location that she always seems to be found in, and that is at the very feet of the Son of God. Do you know this pictures and typifies for us the idea and attitude and action of worship? You see, that's really what we're doing when we're worshiping. We're finding ourselves in adoration at the feet of the Son of God. You'll find all through the Word of God that whenever people began to worship, particularly if they were worshiping something that they could see, or uh, all through the Old Testament, what we call a Christophany or a theophany, when Christ uh, would appear unto men uh, through the Old Testament. You say, well, I didn't know He did that. Well, read, you'll find He did do that all through the Old Testament. He appeared. Who do you think the angel was that stopped the hand of Abraham? That angel said, Thou hast not withheld thine son, thine only son, from me. He didn't say from God. He said, from me. Who do you think it was that was uh, the fourth man like the Son of God in the fire in the book of Daniel? Who do you think it was that stood upon the hillside there outside of Jericho when Joshua with his army set in array down before him went and knelt before him and relinquished the authority of that army to him? That was the Son of God is who that was. All through the Old Testament, you'll find Jesus popping up here and there and everywhere. So I said, Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do thy will, O God. And that's why he said to search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have salvation, and they are they which speak of me. He was all through the Old Testament. 
And when men would be approached with the Son of God through the Old Testament, or even sometimes simply with angels in the Old Testament, they would always have the same response. They would fall down at their feet in worship. You see, being at the feet of someone denotes your inability. It denotes your helplessness. And it denotes your faith and your trust. There's a lot of great defensive positions. If you're the if you're one of these people that that fights and does the uh, Taekwondo Brazilian you know kick footboxing or whatever it is, there's a lot of good tactical positions and defensive positions. uh, But you know, uh, laid prostrate before someone is not one of them. That denotes the idea of trust. You're in a place of vulnerability. But you're also in a place of humility because you're denoting that they're higher than you are. This, listen, you'll get with me here in just a second. What I'm trying to say is that's what worship is. Worship is when we lay ourselves before the throne of God in humility, uh, denoting that God is higher than us. You see, that that's why a lot of this crowd today, a lot of this uh, church crowd that believes in this snowboarding, long-haired, hippie, Mountain Dew-drinking Jesus doesn't have a clue what worship really is. Because they're trying to bring Him down to their level. But you'll find worship always exalts Him above where we're at. That's what true worship is. But it's a place of vulnerability too. I don't know about you, but there's not really much more of a vulnerable place than before the throne of God. I mean, there before the Lord, we are confessing all of our sins, all of our faults, all of our failures. And we're recognizing and laying bare our soul to the throne room of God. It's a place of vulnerability. But I want you to notice it's not only a place of humility and a place of vulnerability, but I want you to understand it's a place of learning as well. Look what it says there in the passage. I'm not even preaching yet. Just hang with me. Verse 39 says, and heard his word. Heard his word. Listen to me. We can, well, we've been talking here lately about the idea of doing a Bible study around here. I like the idea. Amen. I, I like the idea of learning God's word. But understand that if we won't worship, we won't learn. You know what Christ said? I had somebody say to me one time. They were leaving serving God to get an education. And uh, those two things don't have to be mutually exclusive of each other. In fact, uh, this young man said to me, he said, well, I just feel like it's not a serving time in my life. I feel like it's a learning time in my life. And I stopped him. I said, let me tell you something. You'll never have a learning time until you're serving. And you'll never have a serving time except you're learning. You know what Christ said? He said, take my yoke and learn of me. That's service and learning, one and the same. Let me tell you why a lot of people have a lot of knowledge, but it puffs them up, and they don't have the heart and the mind of Christ, and they don't have the love for sinners that they need to have. They don't have the love for the people of God like they need to have, because they have all the learning, but they don't have any of the serving. You see, they've been spending time in his classroom, but they've not spending, been spending time at his feet. We need to understand that worship and learning, if they're going to be truly in harmony one with the other, they go hand in hand with each other. And this is what Mary's doing. And the thing that I'm interested tonight with, and and that I want you to notice, is that every time we see her, this is where she is in a place of worship. No matter what the circumstances were in her life, she was always in a place of worship. No matter when things were going splendidly, she was in a place of worship. And when she was racked with sorrow, we find she was in a place of worship. And as I began to study for this, there was an old song title, and most of you know exactly what I'm thinking of, that came to my mind. I'll use a title, uh, use it for the title tonight. This idea of I shall not be moved. Uh, it's been said before that character is determined by what it takes to stop us. And could I say that in Christianity today, character is a rare commodity. For most of us, it doesn't take much to stop us from serving God. 
I mean, somebody come along and say something about us, we get upset, we quit serving God. Somebody come along and look at us cross-eyed, we get upset, we quit serving God. Somebody comes along and says something we don't like, we get upset, we quit serving God. All of a sudden, a bill comes in the mail, we quit serving God. All of a sudden, we get sick, we quit serving God. Just anything that comes along can derail us from serving the Lord. I'm thankful to say that Mary wasn't this way. Didn't matter what happened in her life, she wanted to be found at the feet of Jesus. I want you to notice three things very quickly tonight. Notice in the passage that we've read, and we're going to read two others, notice that distractions would not move her from the feet of Jesus. Now, we've all read this story a hundred times. We're familiar with it. Jesus comes to Bethany. Boy, I can just imagine what it'd be like around most of our houses if Jesus said he was dropping in for a visit. And Jesus is going to come by. And uh, we do not know what the situation is with Lazarus at this point. He uh, He's probably on vacation. I don't know if they took him back then, but he's not around in this passage. We know that. Uh, but we find that with Mary and Martha, that there are two types of preparations that can be made. And Martha begins doing, I think, what most of the ladies in here would do and what most people would do. Jesus is coming over, hide everything we don't want Him to see. Amen? Jesus is coming over, let's wash the dishes, let's uh, sweep the rug, let's do everything we can to try to get it cleaned up. But Martha does something unusual. When Jesus comes, Martha is uh, presenting and preparing a meal. She's working in the kitchen. But Mary chooses rather to forego the kitchen work and rather to sit at His feet and to worship Him. Now, I want you to notice three things very quickly. I want you to notice first off the priorities that are temporal that Martha had. Could I say to you that what Martha was doing was not wrong? Look what Christ says in verse number 42. Uh, let's read verse 41 and 42. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. Can I say there's a lot of good things we can be spending our time on, but there's really only one thing that's necessary if we're going to walk with God. Not everything that distracts us from the throne room is necessarily sin. And not everything that we set up to be an idol in our life is sin in and of itself. I would propose to you that what Martha was doing was a good thing. I'd propose to you that it came from a good place and from a good heart. I would propose to you that most of us would have done the exact same thing. And I would propose to you that most of us, if it were not recorded in Scripture, if we just heard about it, we would have probably been right there with Martha. We would have looked at Mary and said, Mary, why don't you get up and do something instead of wasting all your time at the feet of Jesus. But truth be told, the problem was a problem of perception. And a problem of value. You see, Martha appreciated the temporal things that she could cook more than the spiritual things that Christ could teach. Can I say that again so we really get it? Martha thought more of the temporal things that she could prepare than the spiritual things that God could teach. Let me tell you something. How faithful we are to God's house, to the prayer closet, and to our personal devotional time and study is in direct correlation to how highly we value spiritual things. Do you know why we don't do more for God? Because we really don't think it pays off. I'm being honest tonight. Is everybody okay? I mean, I, listen, I know we ain't got no piano player. I understand nobody's done a backflip yet. Uh, I've not swung from the rafters. But what I'm telling you tonight is going to help you if we value Jesus Christ more, we'd spend more time with Him. That's what we find in this passage. She wasn't doing anything wrong. She just wasn't doing the best thing. It's not that what she was doing was bad. It just wasn't best. 
And there's a lot of things in our life that take our attention from Jesus Christ that aren't necessarily wrong, but they're nowhere near as great in value as He is. I've seen, I could name off idol after idol that I've seen in the lives of people. And there's a lot of things that are good things that God has blessed people with. But as soon as He blesses them with them, they become idols. It amazes me how people can, uh, uh, for years and years and years, pray for the right job and then finally get the right job and it takes them from the house of God. Pray and pray. Work, work, work. Beg God for a camper or for a boat or for a getaway place or for something for recreation. And then all of a sudden it becomes an idol and that's where they're at. A lot of times it can even be our family. And listen, I'm not beating up on anybody on Mother's Day. I'm merely saying that a lot of times even our family. Family's a wonderful thing. Family's a good thing. We ought to love our family. We ought to cherish our family. We ought to take care of our family. The Bible says if a man... Oh, this, the welfare office would just have a conniption over this. But the Bible says if a man doesn't work, he ought not eat. And the Bible says if a man doesn't provide for his own family, he's worse than an infidel and he's denied the faith. Now, I know that's not very politically correct, but it's still scripturally correct, friend. And I, I listen, I understand we need to work to provide for our family. I understand we need to love and to value them. But you know, even our family can become an idol when we exalt them to a place above Jesus Christ. Anything temporal ought to take a back seat to anything eternal. Anything that's of this world ought to take a back seat to anything that's of the next world. And we live in a time where the spiritual things have been uh, has been set back, have been put on the back burner for anything that's temporal. I, I, you know, it grieves me when I see, and I don't mean this in reference to anybody necessarily here, but just in general, it grieves me when I see the way parents are raising their young people with a mentality and with an attitude that any and everything they can be involved in other than the Lord's house is more important than the Lord's house. Some of you remember a time when even secular uh, ball leagues wouldn't dream of having a game on a Wednesday night. There's enough of the fear of God about them. But now they not only have them, but Christians drag their kids to them. There was a time when uh, they'd never even dream of having a game on a Sunday. They'd never dream of that. That's the Lord's day. But now we live in a society, and it don't listen, it don't bother me that the world is being worldly. The world's going to be worldly. It bothers me when Christians get worldly. We ought to be a different set of people and a different group of people. And we need to get our priorities in the right place. It may not be appealing to us. It may not be easy. It may not be what the world expects. But there will come a day when we'll see that it's right and that it's true and that the things which are eternal are the things which really matter. We see her priorities that are temporal. But I want you to notice the second thing about Martha. We see in verse number 41 that she was personally troubled. The Bible says, uh, Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha... Thou art careful and troubled about many things. Now, that word careful can be used in a lot of different ways, but here what it means is full of care. In other words, Martha, you're worried and troubled about many things. Boy, that's a commentary on the world today, isn't it? I mean, my goodness, a uh, hundred years ago, people worked twice as hard and lived longer. Uh, they'd get up in the morning and they'd eat, uh, you know, gravy-covered bacon dipped in batter and fried with bacon toppings and... Uh, gravy to go over top of it. And, uh, you know, I mean, they, they'd eat any and everything, and they still lived longer than a lot of people are today. It was because they lived with more stress-free lives. I mean, people that were worried about whether their, where their next meal was going to come from had less stress than people today worried about how they're going to pay their cell phone payment. We live in a troubled world. We live in a world that is full of anxiety and stress and fear over everything around us. 
And we've allowed it to rob us of the simple joy of our salvation in Jesus Christ. We have so many things. One of the most difficult things in church life today, and we, and listen, we're right in the thick of it. Knoxville's one of the most, believe it or not, I know you're not going to believe it when I say it, but according to, uh, you know, places like the Pew Study and stuff like that, Knoxville's one of the most Bible-minded cities in the entire nation. And I think sometimes those of us that have lived here and grown up here, it's hard for us to fathom any place being any other way but Knoxville. But, I mean, Knoxville is saturated with churches. And listen, I, I mean, I'm all for as many churches as we can have. But it is indicative of the mentality that we have that we pick and choose everything exactly how we want it. And we can get upset and run from one place to the next and this place to the next, and we can pick it just exactly how we want it. And we can tailor fit our religion, our Christianity, just exactly the way we would have it to be. And we live in a world that is used to getting its way. I mean, listen, if you don't like some of us, some of you in this room have more. Listen, you have more satellite channels than there are chapters in the Bible. Don't like what's on this one, turn to the next one. Don't like what's on that one, turn to the next one. Watching a ball game on this channel, I don't like the way that commentator looks, I'll turn over to this channel, watch it with this commentator. That's just the world that we live in. I understand that. But I fear that in all this noise, in all this clutter, in all these things that we've been blessed with in many ways, we forget that there's nothing that replaces worship. Nothing. Martha, there's many things that you have to do, but there's one thing that's needful. Let me make a statement. I hope it sinks in. This sinks in. There'll never be a convenient time to serve Jesus Christ. You'll always have to put something aside to do it. There'll always be something else. I mean, we don't listen. We're not Quakers. We don't live in a time when the, uh, when the hottest new event to do on a Saturday night is to sit around and watch the paint on the barn dry. There will always be something to distract us from serving God. If we're going to serve Him, we've got to do it on purpose. We won't do it on accident. The devil will make sure we don't do it on accident. We're going to have to make our minds up that we're going to serve. And we see that she was personally troubled by all these things. But what does it say of Mary? In verse 42, but, but one thing is needful. Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. I would say that we see in this passage a perpetual testimony. Can I say that it was worthwhile for Mary to serve God? The Bible says it not be taken away. Now, we're going to read another instance of this here in just a moment of something very similar that's said about her in the book of Mark, that wherever this gospel would be preached, uh, that this would be spoken up for a memorial for. But suffice it to say that when the Lord says this will not be taken away from you, you know what He's saying to her? He's saying, Martha, the things that you're doing are going to fade away. The distractions that are in your life are going to dissipate one day. There's going to come a time when everything that's so important to you, when all the pots being cleaned, when the rug being swept, all the work that you're trying to get done, all the distractions that you're allowing in your life, Martha, there's going to come a time when it's all going to burn up and fade away. But what Mary has chosen will never be taken away from her. It'll be laid up to her account. There'll be a reward in heaven. And the God of heaven is pleased with what she's doing. There's a perpetual testimony. Listen, we've all, we've, we've, we've read this poem. Some of you probably have it hanging on, on a, how, a, a wall in your house. You've got it cross-stitched on pillows, and, and we've all heard it. Only one life, it will soon be passed. 
And only what's done for Christ will last. We better understand that our time is short in this world. And if we're going to do anything for God, we better do it now because we don't know that we've got later. What God is saying here is, Martha, what you're doing is not wrong, it's not sinful, but there's a needful thing. There's something that takes precedence, Martha. And Mary has chosen that which is needful. She's made the right decision. And listen, if you ever have a decision, should I serve God, should I not? Should I go to church, should I not? Should I pray, should I not? Should I read my Bible or should I not? Can I just tell you that it's always the right decision to do that which pleases God? Always the right decision. I want you to notice first off that distractions would not move her. But turn over to Mark chapter 14. And I want us to read another instance of this. Mark chapter 14, uh, just a few pages back. Mark chapter number 14. And I want us to begin reading at verse number 3. The Bible says, "...in being in Bethany..." You notice our Lord was in Bethany again. "...in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious. And she broke the box and poured it on his head." And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, Why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and have been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. And Jesus said, Let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. For ye have the poor with you always, and whensoever ye will, ye may do them good. But me ye have not always. She hath done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. The Bible gives us a, an alternate account. We're not going to read it at this time where the Bible tells us that whenever she did this, she took and began to weep and to wash Jesus's feet with her hair. And she poured this all over. Now, we know that there were two instances that this happened in the word of God. And in Luke, I believe it's chapter uh, seven. We have an instance of another woman doing this. But in this passage, being in Bethany and the other uh, passages telling us that it is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, we know this to be the very same Mary. Now, the story is quite familiar to us. She goes in. Uh, She takes this box of very, very precious ointment. We do not know exactly how much it would have cost, but I'm sure probably uh, in today's measures, hundreds, maybe thousands of dollars. I do not know where she got it, but she had it in her possession. She breaks the box and she pours it all over Jesus. And uh, there to the side, you find a, and uh, the, another account tells us that this was Judas. And uh, by the way, listen, I mean, we ought to be frugal and we ought to be stewards of God's money. But the day that we get that we resent spending money trying to win people and worship Christ and do the work of God is the day we ought to padlock the doors. Amen? Uh, Judas was the one. Judas wasn't even saved. He was the treasure. And the Bible says it was because he had the bag. You see, Judas wasn't worried about the poor getting that money. He was worried about Judas getting that money. And uh, Judas looks at her and says, why would she do something like this? We could have taken this and sold it and given it to the poor. I want you to notice, and uh, I'm going to use this word because it goes along with the message, and I think you'll know what I mean when I say deprivation would not move her from worshiping 
Jesus. In other words, doing without. Or could I put it this way? No matter how high the cost, Mary was still found at the feet of Jesus. Some of us are willing to serve God until it costs us something. And then we back away and say, I didn't sign on for this. It may be that it's costing us something financially. It may be cost us something with our family, with our friends. It may cost us something in the sense of uh, standing uh, and popularity and fame with those around us. But anybody's willing to serve Jesus when it don't cost them anything. And you'll find that there were thousands upon thousands on the mountainside when he was handing out bread and fishes. But you get down close to the cross and you find the crowd gets pretty thin. Everybody's willing to serve Jesus when it doesn't cost them anything. But when it begins to grow difficult, we usually step back and say, I didn't sign on for this. Mary did not do this. So I would say that first off, I want to notice that her worship was strange. Now you say, preacher, what do you mean strange? Well, what I mean is this. It was unfamiliar. The value in her action was unappreciated by those around them that did not know Jesus Christ. I mean, what good did it do? Let's be honest. What good did it do? Did it fill any bellies for her to anoint Him? Did it heal anyone for her to anoint Him? Did it open blinded eyes? Did it raise the dead for her to heal Him or to anoint Him? No, we know that it did not. But still there was a purpose in it. You see, the unregenerate mind... You say, well, what do you mean? I mean the mind of a lost person. I mean someone that does not know Jesus Christ. They don't understand a thing about what goes on in worship. Until you see the value in Jesus Christ, you'll never see the value in worship. Until you see what He means to those that love Him the most, you'll never understand why they act the way that they do. It's interesting to me, there was a time in this country when they did everything they could to mimic uh, gospel or gospel music, Bible preaching. There was a time, and you can go through the song book, and you can find song after song written by uh, people like Albert E. Brumley and a lot of the old uh, redback songs that Nashville tried to take and regurgitate and make money off of. Rick and wonder why they did that. Could it be that some of those producers or some of those musicians had maybe been to some of those country churches, had maybe been in some of those brush arbor meetings and uh, some of those extended camp meetings? Could it be that maybe some of that crowd had caught a glimpse of what God was doing in the midst of their people and wanted to bottle the lightning of the presence and power of God? But they never could. In fact, you'll find that uh, though it seemed to be obligatory for a lot of years in country music to release a gospel album, it seemed like they never did any good. You see, lost folks wanted to hear about the drinking and the running around. And lost folks wanted to hear about the wickedness and the ungodliness. They hoped that maybe they could take that, that atmosphere of worship and package it and reproduce it and sell it to the world and they'd buy it. But what they found was this. Uh, you take that and hand it to a lost person. They stare at you like a calf looking at a new gate. They don't understand what it is. They don't know what they're looking at. They come into a church house. Listen, a lost person can sit in a dead church, but they come into a church that likes to worship and likes to shout and spend time with God and do business with God. And they've either got to get right or get out. They don't understand what they're in the midst of. It's strange to them. They don't understand what would make a person shout. 
Well, you meet my Jesus and you'll know what make a person shout. They don't understand what could make a person sing the way Christians sing. Hey, if you met my Jesus, you'd know what can make a person sing the way that God's people sing. It's strange to the lost world. But it fits just right in with God's people because they see the value in Jesus Christ. You see, we don't sing necessarily because we enjoy singing. We sing because we've got someone to sing about. We don't shout because it's expected. We shout because we've got someone to shout about. And it, uh, listen, if you're looking around sometimes saying, oh, what's all this about? Maybe, maybe you just need to spend a little bit more time at his feet and you'll find out what it's all about. And don't think for, listen, I think there's a tendency sometimes to think, well, you know, that's the modern invention of, uh, you know, uh, southern rural culture, and that's just the way we worship. Reading the book of Isaiah, chapter 12, where Isaiah wrote, I will draw with joy water out of the wells of salvation. This whole getting happy in the Lord, this isn't some new invention. Worship isn't a new invention of a cultural mind. Worship has always been the way God's people have expressed their love and adoration for Him. We see that her worship was strange, but notice verse 4 and 5, it was scorned. Uh, Judas didn't like it. There's always a crowd that gets uncomfortable with worship. There's always a crowd, and sometimes it's lost people. In fact, I'd say it's always lost people if they're around, but sometimes it's even saved people. I mean, there's some people, if you shout, they don't know what you're doing. And let me say this, for our young people, for our young people, I don't want to have the church, the kind of church where our young people, if somebody shouts, they don't know what's going on. I want us to have the kind of church where our young people, where it could get so thick people are swinging from the rafters, and our young people would feel right at home. That's the kind of church I want to have. I mean, that was the kind of church a lot of you grew up in. You grew up, a lot of you, in a church where if somebody was to shout or holler or weep or cry, young people didn't pay no attention to it. They had heard it. It wasn't unfamiliar to them. It didn't scare them. I mean, listen, and, I, and I've known people before say, well, I don't like having my kids in that environment. It scares them. And they'll sit there and they'll turn on the TV and let them watch somebody that's got 800 rings through their body and, and uh, you can't see a single bit of flesh that's actually colored flesh anymore. And hair is eight different colors and going eight different directions, a screaming and a hollering about something that sounds like it's straight out of the pits of hell. And that don't scare their kids. But you get them in worship, they say, well, that scares them. Well, maybe it scares them because they ain't been in it. Amen? Maybe it makes them uncomfortable because they haven't been in it before. There's always a crowd that scorns true worship. But I want you to notice, verse uh, number 6, the Bible says, And Jesus said, Let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. For ye have the poor with you always, and whensoever ye will, ye may do them good. But me ye have not always. She hath done what she could. I think it's important to note that God was pleased with her doing what she could, not what she couldn't. Don't you think that's worth saying? That she, she did what she could. She didn't do what she couldn't. God never expects anyone to do what they can't, only what they can. And she did what she could. And says she has come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached up the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial for her. I would say that her worship was suitable. It may have been strange to the world, but to the Savior, he was pleased with it. She wouldn't let the cost, whether it meant the financial cost or the cost of her pride, 
There's a lot of people. Listen, there's a lot of people in this world. And I've heard people say this before. I've heard people say, well, you know, I'm just not the shouting type. Well, why? Why? Is Jesus not worth it? Now, I'm not saying it to browbeat you. And some of you, listen, I, I mean, I can feel Somebody turned the air on. It got cold when I said that. Don't get tense now. Don't bow up. It's okay. I love you. I'm just saying that I've heard people say before, I'm not the shouting type. And I would say to you that we've got a Jesus that's the type to shout over. And I understand everybody worships in, in a different way. Everybody's different. That's what makes it great. We're all different. If we were all as ugly as me, we'd really be in a mess. I mean, I understand there's some people more emotional than other people, and I'm not saying that we need to have some kind of uh, shallow, cookie-cutter worship, uh, but I'm merely saying this. I've heard some people say, well, you know, I'm just not the type to do that. But, you know, I found out that there's some things that ain't relative to us being a certain type, Brother Al. You know, I found out that if you take two, uh, if you take two folks and set a grizzly bear after each of them, it don't matter if one's Democrat and one's Republican. It don't matter if one's black and one's white, if one's a Yankee and one's a Southerner. They're both going to scream when they run. Amen? They've got something to be a little excited over, right? I mean, there's, uh, there's a certain effect that is produced. And we find in this passage that what Mary did was just the right thing. That's what God expected of her. And I'm not saying you're going to shout as loud or whatever or when somebody else does. The last thing, like I said, is we need is to get the flesh in this thing and it to become some kind of competition. God's not in that kind of mess. That's straight out of hell. But what I am saying is this, uh, that God ought to be able to move us. He ought to be able to move us. And He may move you differently than He moves me, but He ought to be able to move us. It ought to be able to touch and to tug our heart. And we ought not be so prideful that we'd say, I'd never do something like that. God help us. If the Lord wanted me to do a backflip off that piano, well, number one, He'd have to help me or I'd kill myself. But number two, I hope I'd be humble enough to do it. Whatever God asks and expects of me, that's what I ought to be willing to do. And there's a lot of people that won't worship, not because it's not, the, not because they're not the type, but because they're just their dirty, stinking, rotten pride gets in the way of it. And they say, well, what do people think of me? They think I was nuts. Yeah, the world's always thought that Bible Christians were nuts. The world's always thought we were different. The world's always thought we were strange. Why, if they nail our Lord to a rugged cross, would we think that they would garnish us with a laurel crown? Why would we ever believe such a thing? But the truth is, with most of us, we've become so worldly that we don't understand this concept of being separate anymore. And our pride gets in the way and we say, I'll not worship like that. Let me give you a final thing and I'll hush. Some of you said amen when I said that. Turn to John chapter 11. We preached from this on Wednesday night. And, you know, the Bible is a triune book. Just as God is a triune God. And man made in his image is triune. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, uh, operating in parts of three. And you find this to be true of God. Of course, we know that God is a is a trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But us being made in His image, we are triune beings. We are body and soul and spirit. And you'll find that your entire body has God's signature all over it. Uh, you know, you'll find that your arm is composed basically of uh, your upper arm, your forearm, and your hand. You'll find that your hand is composed of your fingers, your palm, and your thumb. You'll find that your foot uh, is composed of your, uh, of your toes, of your foot itself, and of your ankle. And on and on we could go uh, that we are triune beings and we bear the image of God. 
And the Word of God is the same way. And I'm not saying there's three of everything in the Word of God, but as a, as a Bible student and as a, as a preacher, a lot of times when I'm studying, I look for things in patterns of three because God seems to do things in that way. And I had never thought of it before, but as I was studying for the message on Wednesday night out of John chapter 11, I noticed a phrase that's used in verse 32 that struck me as being the third time we see Jesus or see Mary uh, with Jesus. Look at verse 28. The Bible says, now most of you know this story. Uh, Lazarus has fallen sick. They've sent for Jesus, and Jesus abides two days still in the place that he is in. And uh, in that time, Lazarus dies, and our Lord knows that he has died. And our Lord is very clear in saying that he has died. And Jesus then comes to Bethany, and as he's approaching, Martha runs out to him and looks at him and says, Lord, if thou hadst been here, our brother had not died. And there's an interaction that takes place between Jesus and Martha. And he asks her uh, if uh, she believes some things and says that her brother will rise again. And then we pick up the story in verse 28. The Bible says, And when she had so said, speaking of Martha, she went her way and called Mary, her sister, secretly, saying, The Master is come and calleth for thee. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came unto him. Now, Jesus was not yet come into the town, but was in that place where Martha met him. The Jews then, which were with her in the house, and comforted her, when they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her, saying, She goeth unto the grave to weep there. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. You can imagine the scene there in Bethany. Listen, and time would fail me to fully describe just the heart-rendering picture that is painted in John chapter 11 of this sweet family that loves the Lord, that the Lord loves. Of this one that whenever they appealed for the help of Jesus, they said, Lord, he whom thou lovest is sick. And the Bible is very clear to say that Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. They had every reason to believe that Jesus would come to their aid and to their help on their time frame. But we find that the Lord did not do this. And just put yourself in the shoes of Mary for a moment. No doubt there was some questions. No doubt there was maybe some anger. No doubt there was some frustration. And no doubt there was some sorrow in her heart in this moment. And she hears that Jesus is near. But almost, almost instinctually. I mean, almost like it's ingrained within her. What does Mary do? Now, some of us, if it had been us, we would have went out and we would have shook our fist at the Lord. Some of us, we might have gone out and cursed at Him. We might have gone out and just broke down weeping and said, Why didn't you come? But Mary, her first instinct, is to fall down at the feet of Jesus. Could I say to you that not only would distractions not move her, and deprivation would not move her, but I would say that despair would not move her from the feet of Jesus. We live in a world where loss is a normality. We live in a world where if you live in this world long enough, you're going to suffer loss, 
You're going to suffer heartache. You're going to suffer disappointments and you're going to suffer frustration. What will it take to get you to stop serving Jesus Christ? Mary had no answers. She just knew the one that had the answers. Mary was probably like a, like a wrung out dish rag at this point. And you know the feeling. She's at the end of herself. Her only hope had seemingly fallen through. And her whole world had fallen to pieces. But even in the midst of her sorrow, we see her steadfastness. She said, there's a lot of things I may do, but there's one thing I'm not going to do. I'm not going to give up on Jesus Christ. Boy, I wish I could tell you that you're never going to have heartache. And I could. I mean, I could stand up here like in preachers on the TV with the pearly teeth and, and the pretty hair. And I could tell you that if you just give your money to this ministry, you're never going to have any heartache. And I could tell you that if you're sick, it's because you've got sin in your life. I could lie to you like they do, but I won't. No, I'll be honest with you in saying that there's going to be times when you're not going to understand God. There's going to be times when what God's doing doesn't even make just even a semblance of sense to you. Will you quit serving Him then? That's not a rhetorical question. I mean, I'm not asking for an answer, but I'm saying, I'm not just saying that expecting a certain answer in your heart. I want you to be honest with yourself. Will you quit serving Him then? Or will you be steadfast like Mary was? What about when you lose that job? Will you keep serving Jesus? What about when you lose that loved one? Will you keep serving Jesus? What about when your kids break your heart? Will you keep serving Jesus? What about when somebody hurts your feelings? Will you keep serving Jesus? I propose to you that what we've done to Him is a lot worse than what we'll ever have to go through. And he sure ain't give up on us. I'd propose to you that it would have been a lot easier for him to have quit than it should be for us to quit. But the Bible says, oh so poignantly, when it speaks of his time in the garden, it says that he went a little further. A little further. A little further. In fact, he went further than the garden. He went to Calvary for us. wonder what it means by a little further. Well, it's speaking about where the disciples are. The disciples are there with him. The Bible says he went off about a stone's throw away. Went a little further. In other words, he went further than anyone else would. He went further than the disciples would go. He's gone further for us than we could ever go for him. So how far will we go for him? We see her steadfastness. And notice verse 35, and I'm just going to say a word about it in... Notice our Savior. It's the shortest verse in the Word of God. And it's merely two words. It says, Jesus wept. Now you say, well, preacher, what's the significance? What's the significance of just those two little words? I'd say to you that within those two little words, there'd be enough to preach throughout now, throughout eternity, if we chose to. But the point I want to draw your attention to is this. Because she wouldn't move from Him... He wouldn't move from her. Now, some of you are saying, oh, wait, preacher, but the Bible gives me an unconditional promise that he shall never leave me nor forsake me. And I know that's true. I understand Hebrews 13, 5. I understand he'll never leave us nor forsake us. Praise God for it. But I'm saying this. He had a choice. 
He didn't have to weep with her to be her God. But he chose to weep with her. He chose to feel her pain. He chose to feel her heartache. You know, the Bible says, oh, I'm, and I promise I'm not going to preach the same message I did Wednesday. But you know, the Bible says we have not a high priest. And it doesn't say which has not been touched with the feelings of our infirmities. It says which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. You say, why does that matter, preacher? Why, why are you being so picky with the Word of God? Let me tell you why. Because it, if it had said which has not, we might conclude from that verse that it's saying that he has at one time been tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. And we know that's true. But our understanding of it might have ended there. But the fact that it puts it in the present tense tells me this. In his intercessory ministry as our high priest, he's still willing to feel what we feel. That's a Savior right there. That's a high priest. It's not saying it has not. It's saying we have not one that cannot be touched. He's still touched with our heartaches, with our pain, with our fear and with our doubt. And understand that when you're at the feet of Jesus, you're at the feet of one that's graspable. When you enter into His throne room, you're entering into a place where you have a welcome. And you're commanded to come boldly. And understand that if you want to walk away from Him, that's your prerogative. But understand that if you'll serve Him, He'll not walk away from you. You may hurt. You may have fears. You may have heartaches. There may be times when you don't understand Him. But you don't have to understand Him for Him to be God. In fact, most of the time, it helps when we don't. But you have one that's willing to weep with you when you weep. And hurt with you when you hurt. There could be some in this room that one of these things has taken them from the feet of Jesus. There may be some in this room that at one time you were serving God, but then you let distractions get in the way. And you got busy. And when you got busy, you got lazy when it came to your spiritual life. Can I say to you this blessed truth that you don't have to walk away from here in that shape? You can meet God at an altar. And you can begin tonight walking with Him afresh and anew. I'm not talking about getting re-saved. If you got saved the first time, then you can't get unsaved to get re-saved. Amen? I'm talking about rededicating your life to Christ. Choosing to start afresh and anew in serving Him. Maybe you're one of these that used to serve God until you came into some problems. You had to do without some things to serve Him, so instead you just did without Him. Maybe it's been a lot of years since you've really served Him. Could I say that you can start afresh and anew, saying, Lord, I'll give my everything to You. Or maybe there's some here that were serving Him at one time, and then some tragedy happened. Maybe something bigger than I could ever understand. But can I tell you, Jesus understands it. Something happened in your life. You ever met someone that you could tell that they lived in the aftermath? Do you know what I mean when I say that? You ever met someone that you could tell they lived in the aftermath? Something had happened in their life that had shaken them like a bomb going off. And they could never move past it. And they could never get on serving Jesus Christ. Maybe that's you.
Could I say you don't have to live in the past like that? I, I read an interesting quote that no one ever backs into the will of God. Whatever's happened in your life, it's happened. Learn to move on in Jesus Christ. And maybe you'd say, preacher, some despair has kept me from serving God. Could I say that you can let Him bind up your wounds and you can let Him heal your broken heart as He promised He would and you can let Him weep with you when you need to weep and He'll laugh with you when you need to laugh and you can start serving God afresh and anew even tonight.